I don't. I hope he's not being picked up on the mic. There's a a woman having a really personal conversation in her car, or and she's playing the person over a speakerphone. Yeah, and the woman she's talking to is quite happily talking about. <laughs> How she got a venereal disease. The entire estate can hear it. Well, you know, it's important we should know. Okay, so we'd like to welcome today's guest, winner of four Origin Awards and 13 Ennies. He's also an award-winning writer, artist and creator and co-creator of the acclaimed Delta Green series of books and general old man shouting out a cloud on Twitter, the inimitable <laughs> Dennis Tatwiller. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on, Dennis. So the first oh, no question problem. I want to ask you is how do you pronounce your surname? Uh, I've heard Detwiller and Tatwiller and, you know, Detwiller is usually the... the the pronunciation out here, the mental health pavilion at the local college is the Detwiller pavilion. So it's easy to remember locally. Everybody gets my name right locally because Vancouver university, the, where they send you when you go crazy is called the Detwiller pavilion. So <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard people call it yeah, the Twyla, which fans sounds a bit. Yeah, I've heard that too. A brand of English tea or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so we've got the usual thing we ask our guests, which is pick one or the other. Okay, you don't have to go into why. Although when we had Keith from the Titter Pigs on, we, we we thoroughly railed him for twenty minutes about some of the answers. <laughs> we asked him if he would like to. He would rather wrestle a crocodile or fist fight a gorilla, and he chose a gorilla. He's crazy. Well, yeah, a gorilla, a gorilla can yeah. literally rip your arms out of your sockets. <laughs> okay, so don't give it any thought. Just give us one. Okay. Okay. Paint or pencil. Pencil. Tolkien or Moorcock? Tolkien. City or countryside? Country. Devoured by Cthulhu or damned by Nihilathotep? Damned by Nihilathotep. Well, you'd rather have it just go on forever than... <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I guess it, would be, it would be interesting, at least. I mean, Cthulhu is just kind of... It's been done to death. It's incredibly boring. Nihilathotep <laughs> would torture you for eons. And that's a good thing, how? <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's keep you busy. Know what's going on, you know? Uh, no, I, you know, I, I've always, Neurothotep would be, uh, uh, you can learn from Neurothotep. Cthulhu is not going to teach you anything. He's just <laughs> going to eat you. Okay, fair enough. Perfect financial security or no block button on Twitter? <laughs> uh, financial security. Really? 
Yeah. Okay. Forced to interact. I just wouldn't. With- do, I just wouldn't. Sorry, I just wouldn't do Twitter. Wouldn't do Twitter. There was no okay. block button. Well, you're not going to like the next question then. <laughs> <laughs> Forced to interact with every moron on social media, or tortured by cenobites and then tossed into the fiery bowels of Mount Doom. Oh man, forced to interact with every moron because I can learn to love that <laughs> given time. Fair enough. Okay, well, I think we've learned a lot from that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as we normally do, we're going to ask you if you've had a paranormal experience, be that cryptid, ghost, UFO, whatever. So, this is a weird story, and I've told it before. I've never seen anything supernatural or anything like that. My son, Henry, who is, you know, an old man now, but when he was very little, when he was three and four, we lived in Washington State, moved into a new house. And the the moment we moved into this house, new construction, he just started talking about this person uh, who he called Mendo, uh, who would visit him and would play with him upstairs in his room. And occasionally you'd hear him talking to somebody in his room and, you know, he was little. So was, the language was very, no, don't, you know, no, put that down. Very simple stuff. And then Mendo started to get uh, abusive. Like he started to pull on Henry's clothing. I remember having a conversation with Henry where Henry came downstairs and was very mad. And what, what happened? Oh, Mendo is pulling on my pants and yelling like, well, do you want me to go talk to him? He's like, Oh, you can't see him. So anyway, I didn't pay very much attention to it. And then we had friends over and one of them is a a fan of the occult. So he, he heard, <laughs> he heard Mendo and went, Whoa, well, that's a, that's a name for a duppy spirit. That's a Caribbean ghost. And I was like, what? And he brought out Wikipedia on his phone and lo and behold, Mendo you search for Mendo on Wikipedia, Duppy comes up, and a Duppy is a trickster ghost that's Shadow Man that lives in a house and scares people, begins as a friend, and does all this stuff. But the really trippy part is, again, I, I you know, ooh, that's scary. I thought it was kind of funny and didn't really pay much attention to it. Hillary, my wife, uh, we used to go marching the wetlands behind the house, and we have all our boots and put them outside. Anyway. Long story short, Mendo just stopped coming. What, what happened, Henry? Oh, Mendo went away. You know, he made this pronouncement one day. Why? Oh, I don't know. He just didn't come back one day. So <laughs> the, the solution to a dumpy ghost or a Mendo is to place your shoes outside facing outwards on your deck, like on the front of your house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the spirit thinks you went that way and follows and it never comes back. That's the cure. That's like the island cure. So we had accidentally done that. And, you know, Henry. So, but my daughter, who is a little bit older than my son, would say things like, I don't like Henry's room and things happen in Henry's room. And she was five or six at the time. And I was like, did you ever see anything strange with Mendo or the duppy thing? Because we had joked about it before when she was older. And she said, oh, I saw Henry get pulled backwards and fall down once. And it was very strange. And I didn't want to be there. And my daughter is not prone to do stuff like that. So I thought that was kind of creepy. Um, and Henry thoroughly believed it. I mean, it, Mendo was just a real person in the house to him for many months. And so that's the closest I've ever come to something, you know, that felt 
weird and real-ish, mm. um, you know, but I have no idea. I mean, it could just be psychological or, you know, but the whole, my friend going, oh, that's a dumpy ghost. That freaked me out. So, and then, you know, Mendo's searching for Mendo and it brings that. I was like, oh my God, this is like a, a Delta Green operation. What the hell? Yeah, that was so, going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah, when's, yeah. The, when's the Delta Green operation with that going to be being released? <laughs> well, I wrote, actually wrote a little story about this in uh, The Way It Went Down Part 2. There's a, a story with the, the Duppy Ghost and a Caribbean box and the little kid talking to it. And yeah, it was fun. But yeah, kind of creeped me out more fun than anything else. You know, anyway, he's gone. I mean, you did live in New York City, didn't you? So you've probably seen everything anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, New York City is a whole other... And I grew up in New York in, in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. So I left in the 90s. Uh, by 92, I was gone. But like the 70s, Taxi Driver is probably the most accurate portrayal of New York. In the 70s, the 80s would be like, you know thing in new york or new jack city or it was incredibly violent and dangerous and by the early 90s they started to clean up Times square and make it nice so yeah i saw all manner of horrible things in new york city um growing up so that was fun <laughs> i mean does your, son, does your son have any recollection now of it even vaguely <laughs> Uh, kind of, he'll, you know, when we asked him about it, I'm not sure if he's just agreeing with us, you know what I mean? Like, mm. because he's heard the story so many times from his sister and, you know, and, and it was very, he was very, very little at the time, you know, he basically was just a, a little tot, you know? Um, but yeah, he would, you know, he has said that shadows would move in the room and things like that, but I don't know how accurate that is. I never saw anything. So I, I kind of wish I had, uh, and it was all, you know, it's a new house and everything. It's the last thing you expect, you know, you're, you know, it's a creepy Victorian mansion or something maybe, but like it's, Oh, it's literally we're the first people who have moved in here and you don't expect some haunting. Oh, excuse the lights. It just means someone is at the front door <laughs> <They're> <laughs> flashing on and off. Mendo's knocking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing that on purpose. I promise. <laughs> See, I went. To, I went to New York at the Christmas just gone, and um, oh, okay, it, it felt really safe. But then, uh, oh, it, it's extraordinarily safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's incredibly safe now. There's, you know, uh, the the New York Police Department. My uncle is in the New York Police Department. There, it's bigger than the garrison of Rome. Like, if you shout "police," there will be four policemen on your position anywhere in New York within a minute. Mm. Um, they literally block for block. So it's extraordinarily safe now, but like in, when I was growing up, when I was going to, you know, uh, Arson's school design, when I was in high school, I was doing comic stuff there. You did after dark, you just never went into central park at all for any reason. Like you would, you would be jumped at the very best, you know, robbed yeah. at the very worst, you know, killed or something. So Lots of areas of the city were completely off limits and just kind of known. You just don't go there like uh, Alphabet City and uh, Harlem. And but now it's all very gentrified and nice. The whole city, basically. Yeah. Uh, Manhattan, I should say. So, yeah. OK, well, let's move on to the next bit. Um, I've, got, I've got a question for you. It's more about you. A number of years ago, okay. you, you posted a story on Twitter 
and it stuck with me and it's one I've actually told my own <laughs> kids and it was about oh, one God. day you went went to Disney and I think it mm-hmm. was either, I think he just son turned to you and said dad you can't possibly make this bad as you were walking in and then you thought for a moment and said to him and said one day somebody will be the last person to ever go into Disney now based yeah. on that do you consider yourself cynical a realist a pessimist or none of those things because you because you were just joking uh oh it was so it was my daughter oh right okay just so i told her that that's the story is pretty much accurate uh i wouldn't consider myself any of those things uh i i honestly think the world is so deeply fucked up because people pretend their humanity is a lot more important than it actually is. We're an extraordinarily successful herd animal that lucked out when an ice age came to an end. Um, we are a closed energy system. We will live and die just like every other animal on this planet. We're not going to go to the stars. We're like an antelope. We, we are. <laughs> Everything we're doing is supposed to happen. And it, 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 we're not some miraculous outside the system thing. So that's how I tend to look at the world, which is uh, nothing is forever. Good things don't last. And uh, it's important to understand that when you're young. Um, And I learned that at a really young age. And it was very helpful to me to be able to navigate social problems and dealing with people and living my life. A lot of people have a very unrealistic expectation of how, you know, I'm going to change the world or I'm going to like, that's a default setting in American Mm. culture where I grew up. Everybody's going to be an NBA star or a rap guy or, and it's garbage. You're even if you were, it doesn't matter when you get there, it's going to be bad or it's going to be worse than you had imagined. Um, So living your life uh, in a very realistic manner, I, you know, maybe realist is a good word, but I can't think of a word. Uh, that would cover it. I'm happy most of the time, yet I believe humanity at its core is flawed and will destroy itself almost certainly within the next 25 years, maybe 40 years. Um, And it doesn't depress me because that's kind of who we are. Um, I hope hope it's not 25 years because that's when my mortgage ends. And I was sort of (laughs) hoping to have a bit of time after 20 you know, it'll, it'll, it'll match its name then. Right. You know, it comes, it's just, it's, you know, the death tack, but yeah. Um, I just, I, I think a lot of people really look at the world in a really messed up way. Uh, I think if the default looking at the world is really messed up, uh, and therefore they're continuously depressed, uh, because they're expecting the world to miraculously line up or do something great or, and it's just, it's not that great a place. It's kind of crappy and the people are really not that great. Um, in general, so yeah. I, I mean, the thing is, as, as you say, that's the it's kind of the American way of thinking that everyone can change the yeah. world. Yeah. In the UK, it's a bit more kind of have no expectation and you won't be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say I'm quite there. I, you know, I grew up. I grew when I grew up in New York. Uh, I had lots of experience with terminal illness in my family. So we had two people die of prolonged diseases, like right in my face, for years. Who were very young, and uh, that really taught me a lot. It's kind of like you do everything right. You can be the nicest person on the planet. You can still get screwed out of the blue. There's no guarantees. So enjoy what you got right now. And if you can't do that, guess what? You're going to regret it later. And so I try and 
teach that to my kids. That's kind of my, my daughter likes my little creepy games. Let's put it that way. She, she actually goads me to say things like that because she finds enjoyment in them. She finds them sinister and evil and cool and funny. And so luckily we have that kind of rapport. Um, my son just wants me to punch him. So, <laughs> you know, we, we, we want to fight, but my, me and my daughter, it's, <laughs> it's, it's verbal, verbal sparring. I, I ought to do. I ought to do a bit of that because my my kids are. Di- that God love them. I love my children, but they are very Disneyland. They are very oh, every yeah. days a day at Disneyland. Everything, and I'm thinking they're just about to go to university, and I'm thinking, yeah. oh my God, please don't get hurt because you you have yeah, no it's, it's, understanding. It's it's hard. So so yeah, I mean, um, one of the. Like, so here on Vancouver, so where I live is like killer. I'm not kidding. There are killer whales on the beach. There are sea otters. There are deer everywhere. It's open for me, a New York City kid. This is, I might as well have a trapper hat on and like holding a musket. (laughs) It feels like that. So here, my New York wiring is completely overkill on all fronts. I know I'm, I'm like an F-14. I have 21 independent targets mapped in any public space. It's so exceedingly safe here that I'm like, there's a homeless guy behind us about 200 yards and he's approaching <laughs> us. So I, and my wife and my children are just like obliviously wandering around. I would never take them to New York. Let's just put it that way because they, they would just walk into the street or they're, they're like, you know, your, your children, they're just so happy and kind of like well-adjusted and ready for everybody to be their friend that when it's not that way, it's so devastated. Like my son will come home and be like, the teacher raised his voice to me today. And I'm like, yeah, the nuns used to hit me. Like I used to be left-handed. That's what I'm thinking, you know? Um, It's funny that because my, my wife, she went for a job interview once. My wife used to be a nanny. And then in the interview for a job she got, they asked her, um, how do you generally live your life? And she said, I live it like a Disney musical. Do you know what? She does. <laughs> Everywhere she goes, she's making songs up and singing. And whenever I come out, I don't anything approaching realism. She says, look, I'm happy in my bubble. Okay. I know there's bad things outside it, but I don't want to think about that. I want to just enjoy life while I'm alive. And I yeah. I think that's, that's, a, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think my wife is very much like that too. She's the opposite of me in all ways. She's super happy. She's everybody's friend. You know, you leave her alone in like a Turkish prison for three minutes and everybody, she's like, this is Abdul, his, <laughs> his daughter, you know, and you're just like, what the hell? What, you know, like, and she can't help it. It's like default. Um, and I love that about her. I wouldn't change it for, for a million dollars. My daughter is kind of a mix between us. So she can put on this social face and get along with everybody, but it exhausts her and she wants to retreat and read books and draw and paint. And my son is 24 seven radio personality shock, shock, just randomly saying the weird. He, I, you, did you see the British insult he came up with the other day? I thought that was the funniest. He, he oh. called my wife. He said, we're eating. And she said something and he goes, you absolute Pringle. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, why, why would you say that? Like, what, where did you get that? And he's like, it sounds like a British insult. So I put it up on Twitter and they did a vote and all these people were like, that's an awesome British insult. You know, they might've said facking or awesome something snack. in front of it. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, but he talks, he, he just has this, he, the language is jazz to my son. He just, 
experiments and throws out phrases that crack us up. So, okay, so let, let's let's move it onto onto Delta Green because, as you know, I'm I'm okay. a huge fan of Delta Green. I've essentially yeah, done thanks. a lot of my my channel on on talking about Delta Green. Awesome. Um, so I've got some questions around it, and these are all coming from me. And I think uh, Griff might have some as well, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Um, first question I have is, why do you think Delta Green has resonated as much as it has done since since uh, since it went solo? Yeah. So so I'm trying to put together an answer to this that doesn't sound negative on Call Cthulhu um, because it, it shouldn't. I don't want you to, I want you to put in, I, I want to answer honestly and I want you to put in what's honest. I just don't want to be a dick about it is like call Cthulhu. The current iteration of call Cthulhu is Disney. It's very happy. And, Oh, you don't die. You can bend the roll and push it. And, you know, like, it, so the core conceit of Delta Green is not only are you not going to win, you're probably going to make things worse. And that's the fun. And whenever it's run to a point where people are telling stories about it 10 years later, it's always messing up. It's always bad outcomes. It's never, oh, and then I found the book and I did the ritual and the guy gets sent back and yay, we won. It's always... I'm the last member of my team alive in the hospital where their remains have been infected by some horrible thing in the autopsy room. And I have to crawl from my bed with a gunshot wound <laughs> to sneak downstairs and just to burn the bodies and the, the, the incinerator before we're all caught. And that really happened. I ran, that was invested with uh, Ken Heights and Shane Ivy. We all sat around and played. I made it up and we played it. And the last 25 minutes of that game was just trying to make rolls for this heavily injured agent trying to dispose of bodies. And then she got caught and she gave up like, and went to jail, but she managed to burn the horrible blue blood stuff. Uh, but I think, I think the, what resonates so strongly, it's several things. One, it's an easily understood conceit. The in is instant and well understood and can be, conveyed in a sentence the in in like a normal horror game or like chill or there's so many ins like oh you're you're archaeologists doing mm. this and you know but the downside of that you know when we played the entire reason called uh, delta green came about is when we were playing mask of neural throat tap it became so bad that the re the replacement problem that we were just like okay come on waiter we're going underneath the pyramid <laughs> of giza you know and it it just so Delta Green was developed to kind of answer that. And in answering that, I think it made it much stronger. But secondarily, it just makes sense when you understand the Lovecraft stories. The Shadow of Rinsmith, it ends with a submarine firing torpedoes offshore into Devil's Reef and the Marines marching in. And, you know, what would follow? It, it's, it's obvious what would follow some sort of cover up. And we just carried that forward and forward and forward. It just kind of made sense. Um, so I think those two things together, a clear conceit and kind of continuation of Lovecraft's world. And then the third bit is just the absurdity and fun of ruining characters in a safe environment. So you're playing this game and these guys are getting blasted to bits or going insane. And it's funny and safe and cool. It's, uh, it's not you. It's not your friends. It's just a way to goof around. And I think it just delivers that kind of dark horror vibe a little bit better than stuff that's kind of shifted more towards 
player for, like I think what people what game masters think players want isn't what they want they don't want a get out of jail free card they want real risks that they might be able to slightly overcome and face ruin if they don't they want that mm. because otherwise it's just vanilla and blank and doesn't no victory means anything because you if you always oh I'm always I'm gonna push it or spend a hero point or it doesn't feel as satisfying when you overcome something. It feels like you're faking it. And so that's kind of what I think, high level. I mean, yeah, there is, there is beauty in failure often, isn't there? You know, the, oh, yeah. the big anecdotes I have over the years have always been when something went catastrophically bad or someone had a catastrophically minute chance of doing something but did it. Yeah, it's oh, always, yeah both ends of the scale, isn't it? It's never the kind of the normal victories you remember. It's the outlandish that you remember. And I think, yeah, I think yeah. you're probably right. Delta Green does that really well. You know, I, there's been so many times I've run it and it's just all gone to shit. But but that's where the fun lies, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that you know, that's the core, that's the core of the game. That's what we really wanted to write. Mm. It's not just that it goes to shit. When, when I play it, there's layers that appear and whatever you do seems to make things worse. And I, I love that. Pressure. Yeah. And it, it, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. But as a player, I often think it's a bit like Fargo without m- maybe all the cleverness just and, <laughs> and, and funny. It's funny after yeah. at the time. It's horrific. You're going, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Somebody's knocked on the door. We're going to have to shoot them in the face now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, I, I truly love coming up with operations and situations that will just make the players, I know this is going to make the players' day awful, but it makes complete sense. So, one of the more recent ones was uh, one of the players insisted on bringing his home phone on the mission, one of the agents was like, I know I need this because my daughter's getting married. And, and uh, uh, you know, I made him make a lock roll. And I was like, oh, yeah, you you pinged the, the San Francisco airport when you landed your phone. So your, your location updated San Francisco on Facebook. And your wife thinks you're in Chicago. And then the whole mission was just two-hour phone calls with a weeping wife in the middle of his daughter's... <laughs> wedding thinking he's cheating on her and lying to her and and you know it was horrible and funny and sad and he was like i I think i can't save the world guys i have to fly home i'm not gonna have a family like we've all been it it was just great yeah it was just great it just built and built and built until she's calling at all hours and they're literally stalking a cultist and trying the phone's ringing and he's just like oh my god um, but yeah, I love moments like that. I, I love just bringing the real world and inserting it next to just otherworldly, unnatural horror and seeing what happens. I mean, there was a funny bit when we ran Impossible Landscapes when um, mm-hmm. they got in touch with with Abigail's father, and oh, yeah. as he was as he was arriving. <laughs> The, the McAllister building was in flames. <laughs> they just, just walk away like, don't look in that direction. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. We just finished uh, my tenth run through of the night floors, so now they're into volume of secret faces. Mm-hmm. My tenth time running impossible landscapes. It's always different, and I love it. So fun. Oh, okay, let's move to the next question. Then is is there anything in the current lineup that you wish you'd had more time with? No, 
Um, okay, next question. That's an easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I can I can explain our concept. So, one of the reasons I came back to Delta Green to do these things was me and Shane made a deal, and that deal was, it, we shall serve no wine before it's time. I, I I don't care when the book was due. I don't care what we promised in the book. All we have to do is over deliver super quality. That's it. it. It could be any date. It could be 2050. If if the book does not feel right, it's going like uh, the one we're working on right now is God's Teeth, which is just a fantastic book by Caleb Stokes. He's so good. I mean, I, I love it. But even the first version was amazing. We were like, Caleb, can you add a whole other section? And he went, <laughs> yes. So when I answer these things, I never have a target date. I, I just work on it until I, I can no longer work on it. And Impossible Landscapes was the hardest one I've done yet. I'm working on a new one that's a little bit bigger. That's kind of scarier um, as far as I'm trying to do something bigger and weirder. Um, and that's really difficult. Is that possible? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be. Um, but, yeah, so that's a, po- that's a general arc dream policy is that, if you don't, if you are the creator of this individual text and you don't feel it's ready, it's not ready. And no amount of business or like, oh, we got to make Christmas or that's never, ever going to enter into it because um, Delta Green was never like that. Like the original Delta Green, like Countdown took like seven years or something like that to, to write. Um, it just took forever. Um, but it, it became this thing where people would be like, Oh my God, this book, you know, like, and that's the reaction we want on all the books. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, that's our general high level kind of goal. I mean, in a kind of slightly compatible thing, um, as you know, I, I wrote viral with Alex Gillot and oh, yeah. we, spent the, we spent the extra time on it. We, we said that we don't want to release oh, yeah. it until it's ready. And yeah, and I hit platinum as good, a result. good policy. Yeah. Good. That's, this is, this is really important if you're an RPG creator. So high level, if you're making TTRPG products, quality trumps everything, everything, dates, size, fancy stuff. It doesn't matter if, if the quality of the writing is there, if the quality of the art is there. And if those two together make something bigger than those two individually, it's going to do okay. And it might take a while to catch on. It might become big years later, mm. but um, so many people rush to market on these things or they just go like, Oh, I'm going to write a book on 500 cantrips or something like that. And literally bang it out in a weekend and just like, print. Um, I don't want to do that. I'm not, I have no interest in doing that. Um, you know, so. Well, it's paid off, hasn't it? Because the, the, uh, the yeah, oh, yeah. awards. So, um, so the next question now, I think you've partially answers, answered, is what are you most proud of from what has been produced as a whole for the setting that you didn't write? That I didn't write? Yeah. Uh, I think most recently, um, sorry, I'm just looking at the books. Uh, I think most recently Iconoclasts, which is Glancy's uh, Iraq, you know, hunt the war god kind of campaign. No spoilers. Because it's Ian, very Ian Griffith playing it. No spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I won't spoil it. But but basically, I will say that it's it's a wonderful foil to Impossible Landscapes. Impossible Landscapes is a very 
dreamlike experience with lots of elements and an iconoclast is a very Tom Clancy down to earth intelligence gathering kind of this is what actually happened in Iraq kind of thing, which I really love too. So that was really uh, heartening to see that come together so well and to grow so big. Again, another policy. We promise a 128 page book, you get a 368 page book. <laughs> we promise, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's another big deal um, for us. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally go with that, you know, because I mean, I've had people say to me, you know, why would you back the third Kickstarter? You haven't fulfilled the first yet. I'm like, the quality of the first stuff as and i always remind them about what was originally promised for impossible landscapes versus what we got yeah. i said the value oh, yeah. in that was just immense you just yeah, have to make sure he... you you meet that 25 year deadline before the world ends <laughs> <laughs> just, just give us a yes, day to read yes. it that's that's our only real deadline um but yeah no i mean so so this yeah i so we're working on like nine books right now which is is great and bad um i'm working on operational history and uh god's teeth god's teeth is in layout and final design um but yeah we like i said we we try and kill these books we want these books to be amazing and if we can't do that the book is just going on the shelf we're not going to release it mm. so the people who come into these kickstarters we warn them straight up we go like we we take our time because we're we're trying to build a, a line of unbroken quality and that the quality goes up or down on our books we understand that but we want to keep it within this bar where you never look at one of our books and go eh, uh it's just a filler you know so that you know that's tough but yeah the Kickstarters, you know, we've had great responses. The other thing we do is 100%, if you want your money back, done. Just write us. The thing we hate is you show up and complain and complain and complain when you get the answer, which is, we're just going to take our time until the book's right. You want your money back? And they're like, nope. I'm just gonna, I just want to complain. I hate those people. Thank you for your money. Please take it back. We don't, you can buy the book when it comes out and you hear how great it is, uh, hopefully. Hmm. That's um, the thing. With, <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the, the three Kickstarters, I went all in on all three of them. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I say to people, you know, for what the first one was, the amount of value we got out of that, and it's still not complete. And so we, oh, yeah. No, we're still, we're still going. Yeah, we're still going. Uh, Shane's working on Deep State. But, I mean, when, he, when I look at the hardcovers – it's more than we ever achieved at Pagan by, you know, times 10. Um, it's just an amazing lineup. And I'm very proud of all the books, which is a, a rare, a rare feeling on my part. Usually <laughs> I look back and go, eh. but yeah, I feel pretty good about all of our stuff. Do you know what the only regret I have with the, with the first one is the first Kickstarter. Cause I remember, well, I remember following you and you were really not sure at the time whether people would buy into it. Oh yeah. And no, I had no it, idea. It went went ballistic, didn't it? I I was waiting on that to start, and then when I drove <laughs> home from work, you'd put it live, and all of the art, get your picture in the book, are gone. Was, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll I'll put you in a book in the future. You're just gonna have to send me some photos. You heard that, Griff? I heard it. That's yeah, going in. <laughs> we got recording it as I'll well. <laughs> I'll kill you. I'll kill you in some way. I'll have a Even if it's just monster. a pair of hands that a demonic or something yeah. like that. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, yeah. So yeah. Sorry to get off off topic there, but yeah. Is that is that is that something that you know that commitment to quality? I mean, 
and, and doing things as a marathon rather than a sprint. Is that does that go through it sort of everybody you work with, or do you find that some people need a little bit of extra to get through it? Uh, no, no. So we, uh, you know, John, John Tyne, Scott Clancy and myself all shared this kind of general idea, which is to make something really great. You really have to, you can't just bang it out and go, that's it. You have to kind of bang it out and then question everything, bang it out again, question everything, you know, and, and we got a wonderful system going where I would write something Glancy would write something times and then everybody'd switch and put together notes and send it back. And the original author always wrote what they wrote, but they, they could take or leave your notes. And sometimes, you know, I would ignore a Glancy note or times would ignore my note. And, and I think at the time, God, he's an idiot. That's going to suck, but it never did. You know, it's always great. It's always, he always figures me out and he always kind of end runs me. So the looseness and the length, is really important, you know, not a stringent editorial process where it's like, here are the changes, put in those changes. It's kind of like, here are my notes and go with it. And when they say, when you need it back, you say like fall or, you know, you don't <laughs> say like 22nd of this month would be great. And if you can't make that, you know, we're going to screw up our whole fall schedule. Um, you know, so, so, but high level, we attract all the people who work with us, Caleb, uh, Shane are all like that. They're all, they've learned to be loose. Shane used to be a stringent scheduler. Everybody from who had a corporate past, including me grew into scheduling. Um, I rebel against scheduling. So I kind of lead the way on this one. I come out here and I'm just like, fuck that. I don't care when this is due. I'm just going to go work on it till it's done. Um, the important bit is a lot of artists have a really hard time. Like you were saying, you're kind of implying they have a hard time kind of cutting it off at the end. And I really think that's a difficult skill to learn, but uh, it's a really important skill for an artist to, to perfect. At some point you have to go, I can no longer, and it, it takes honest judgment. You have to be able to look at your product and look at someone else's product and compare the two and go, is this quality here? Uh, can I change it? Can I make it better? And at a certain point, the answer is no. Um, Impossible Landscapes was so hard, so many words, so many iterations that eventually I became utterly exhausted and gave it to Shane and said, I don't even know if this is a thing. Like, this is how scary this book is to me. I went so far off the deep end read it and let me know. He had not seen most of it. So I just handed it to him and he read it. And he went, Oh, this is great. Like, and I was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> um, but, but I, you know, that's the only book I've ever done where I literally exhausted myself. I wrote it so many times that I hit the end and I just couldn't do anymore. It was all just word soup. Uh, I felt like I was eating the book. Um, mm which is where the foreword came from. Um, oh, the, this but, book has teeth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the best description of role-playing I've ever read. It's, it's, oh, it's really quite clever. Um, <laughs> so um, one of the questions was, how do, how do things currently stand from, the, from a developmental standpoint? And for once, you can't use the awesome Wells wine advert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so God's teeth in layout i'm finishing art for that i have about 10 pieces to go and then it's done operational history is mostly written 
Um, so for those who aren't aware of operational history, it's basically every decade from the Innsmouth raid to the modern date with operations outlined in each, like right. uh, the raid on Innsmouth, how to play in it, how to, and then lots of NPCs and artifacts and news stories and handouts for each one all the way through. So uh, the elder things in Antarctica, the Kinyani in the 1950s, the saucer stuff in the 40s, it's all covered. It's big history book, basically. And uh, for uh, those who come after is written and I'm on the second scenario and I have one more scenario to go after that. And then that's done. Shane is working on deep state and falling towers. Uh, deep state is <laughs> March technologies and kind of an examination of the current state of the program and falling towers is, is uh, about the, the fate and kind of the destruction of, uh, you know, post 9-11 in New York and what that means. And, and uh, John Tynes is almost done with all of his labyrinth stuff, I think. I think he's got one more scenario and then he's done. And besides that, uh, I'm writing two fiction books that are set in Delta Green stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, working on a comic with a guy named Richard Pace who did uh, Batman comics for Delta Green. Uh, oh, and I, we have a, a lot of comic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's not announced or anything like that. It's just kind of me oh, and him. Okay. Uh, R- Richard. Pace. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fine. If you look up, if you look up Richard Pace, you'll see his comic stuff. He's done amazing. You know, he did the doom that came to Arkham, uh, the, the, the Batman Lovecraft one. He's done a bunch of DC stuff. Really, really clever dude and love his stuff. So, I'm trying to think of anything else. We have a TV thing and we, you know, I have another TV thing, but that's all on hold because of strike. Um, and uh, that was one of my questions. Yeah. Oh, we was a few years ago. You mentioned that. it, wasn't it? Because mm-hmm. you said there's something to do with the TV. And I asked you about it and you said it's not Delta Green. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's been changes in both those answers. But yeah, we can talk about it in a minute if you want. I'd love to. I see one of the questions I had was from someone called Matter Pickup, and this is the question: Pisces, when? Also, thank him for all he does. Oh, um, so we have. Oh yeah, we have the draft of Pisces, and it's with Scott Clancy. So we have a bunch of uh, Adam Crossingham and all these cool guys in the UK who worked on a draft of the original book. We have that book. It goes to Glancy. Glancy has it now. Glancy's rewriting it. So basically it's his creation. So, you know, again, it's, it's in the black box that is Glancy. So we don't know whenever it's ready. See, I was at the original Kickstarter. It's Pisces and Fallen Towers. I'm most looking forward to when when we finally hit the final stretch goal. I was really happy. Well, Pisces. So I, I will say the draft of Pisces I read is, is big and grand and, and a full playable campaign slash setting so it's not it doesn't it doesn't uh doesn't beat around the bush it's a whole other oh here's you know if you want to play delta green in the uk here you go it's a whole solution but then (laughs) i also know scott wants to put his stamp on it so he'll be crawling into it he read it he liked it but that doesn't mean he won't be tearing it all down to blocks and starting over and changing it so that would be my guess I mean, so we don't know. Say, if he was to say that Boris Johnson had a had an insect from Shagai in his head, I would totally. <laughs> <be like. 
Okay, so um, one more question before we talk about the TV stuff. Is there anything sure. you, that you would particularly like to do with Delta Green? Uh, well, the comic is one of the things I was hoping to do. You know, get a good comic artist who's experienced and try and tell some stories in Delta Green. Uh, besides that, I mean, all the books I'm writing are things I want to do with Delta Green. You know, there's nothing I'm working on that I wouldn't be working on on my own in one way or another. Um, so the new book I'm working on is about non-human intelligences, which is like a completely new threat to Delta Green. So imagine the things that cause form possession, but they're not they're not demons. They're they're uh, hyper hyper extrusions in, in space time on the of the brain, the B-R-A-N-E of space time. Um, so I'm working on that book and that's going to be a big, weird campaign. And uh, I'm having great fun with that right now. And that's, that was something new I wanted to do. I wanted to build a camp. So I'm building a campaign that deals with predicting the future. And I want to put that in a, in a game where the players are utterly convinced that their agents have caught glimpses of the future that come to pass in surprising and cool ways. So I, wa- I want the transit of information throughout this campaign to feel like you're seeing into the future. And when you get there, you know what to do right. in, in a way that no game has ever, no RPG I've seen has done. It's usually, oh, you have a vision of a guy on a plane or, you know, like it's vague and kind of, I want it to be like, you know, seven bullets are fired in this room in two months on this day, you know, so you're going to be there. You know, you're there. What are you going to do? How do you prepare for it? So that's what I'm working on right now. And it's very difficult. So that's the key, I think, for for the Delta Green stuff is just as long as it feels really hard to do, that's what I want to be doing. I, I never want to feel comfortable in it. I want to be scared of what I'm doing. Okay. Well, some great answers there. There was one question we actually talked about um, before you came on, which I didn't write down, but I've just remembered. Is sure. AI art. Yeah. Where do you stand on it? I know, obviously, I'm going to obviously assume that you're dead against it. Where, what do you see as the future? Of <laughs> so I have a, a multi-layered answer to this. I want to get this right. So... I'm I'm among one of the last classes trained in like traditional art in college with no computers. Like computers were too weak to really do anything significant when I was in college. So, you know, Macintosh SE, Photoshop One came out when I was in college. So I got to see that on the ground and I got to see the creators who are going to be affected by it react to it. And there were the reaction is almost identical to the current AIR thing, which is it's crap. It's never going to replace my job. It's blah, 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 blah. And then what you see is a, a, the reverse decimation of a job. There used to be all these filler artists who did nothing but lay out magazines and create small elements for, you know, here's a little piece of art that goes in the corner of Atlantic magazine. And that's, I get $95 for that. And I do a hundred a week and, you know, that job's gone forever now. You literally go boop and it's just there in a Photoshop file and you can kind of fool with it. So there's a there's a reality. And the reality is AI art is not going anywhere. It's going to progressively get better. It's about 200 days old right now, like 250 days old for like you know, Dolly or any of those other things. There's no effective way to stop it. Uh, not registering copyright, all that kind of stuff. That's great. I, I agree with all of that. And scraping artists' work is shit. 
but I don't see any way to stop that without stopping the internet. So there's a high level issue there. But what I think will happen is this. I think there will be a reverse decimation of the jobs I hold now. So illustrators who merely illustrate, and I don't want to use the word merely too loosely, but illustrators who literally could care less about what they're painting will be out of a job. And you will lose nine of those guys and one artist who is driven and crazed and nuts in 10 years will be using AI art as a supplement. I do not believe it will replace the artist. But when I see these things, I imagine much like you would use... uh, a layout program or something today, I can see a very quick, oh, I just want to, you know, get a layout of kind of what I'm imagining and being able to kind of put it up on the screen real quick and then painting the heck out of that by hand or something like that. I, you know, it's not good either way. I do not see a future where the writing tech or the art tech is a benefit to artists. It, It will damage art. But, you know, having said that, I don't see a way around it. I don't see a way where it goes away. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, I hear, I hear this a ton. I hear, you know, why, why should you just be able to draw? Like, no, I can do that, you know. And I just, <laughs> but they're not it's doing such a hard. dumb, I know, it's such a dumb statement. And, you know, it, it exhausts me even thinking about arguing with something like that. So high level, not going away, will come to supplement the artist's. Only really driven artists are going to eventually find this as a tool set. And a lot of normal mid-range art jobs are going to vanish forever. And I wish it weren't so, but, you know, factually, I, I can't really see a way around that. Now, having said that, I think it's going to be far more devastating on the other side, on the non-creative jobs. I think it's utterly going to decimate all the jobs added in the last 35 years. The the box tickers, the people who read emails, the people who trade emails, the people who trade papers, they're all dead. They don't even know it yet. And that'll be within five years um, because it'll cost 11 cents. It used to cost $85,000 a year. Now it will cost 11 cents per use. And, you know, summarize these 7,000 emails. Boop, it's done. Mm. And that's now, you know. Five years from now, I, I can't even imagine. So a lot of people look at the tech now and they think, ah, that's not a threat. And I, I look at it and think that is literally getting better by the second. And eventually it will just surpass what anybody can kind of think about text-wise. But the initial spark, the initial joy, the initial idea is never there. And I think that's, you know, so I worry about it. I wish it weren't so. I never thought I'd live to see it. Um, and the art stuff is the way the text scrapes artists art is just garbage and I hate it. And, you know, someone dumps all my art in there, uh, on one of those services and, you know, I have no recourse. No, nobody has any recourse. So, yeah. I mean, we, we did an, an episode recently of the podcast about the horror of AI, and I've, I keep, I've always mentioned this, uh, Griff has a doctorate in AI, and you mm. said pretty much the same thing, didn't you, Griff? It's just going to put a layer of shit on top of... It's oh, yeah. going to be like the Terminator and realise that humans don't deserve to live. It's just going to make life worse for us. And yeah, there was, there yeah. Was, there was a tweet recently, and it stuck in my mind. But I'm paraphrasing here. It says something along the lines of me working in a supermarket while computers write poetry, do art, and write books. It's not the dystopian <laughs> future I imagined. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, you know, the, the, the other bit is just disinformation and uh, the fidelity of deep fakes and such are just going to become the, the working time on those is going to come down so close to zero that you're going to be able to just make a bot machine that's going to spit out. Give me 700 hours of Biden having sex with a goat, you know, and it'll it'll just be like and just mass posting those things. So you're not even going to be able to know, you know, I, you know, within five years, you're not going to be able to pick a video out at a glance and think that looks a little funky. It's going to learn. Uh, well, not learn, but it, I mean, it's going to <laughs> it's going to winnow down to the point where it will produce videos of such fidelity that it'll be almost impossible to tell without some sort of specialized training. I have friends who are like uh, English teachers and such, and they're trying to scan for GPT-4 in their English papers. And I'm like, you know, I'm not sure that's a thing you can do. Uh, you know, especially if the kid is just typing it word for word from his own paper, like, you know, get chat to do it and then type it. You're like, I, I don't, you know, I don't see a way out of this. Um, it's, it's going to create, create a world of, of college graduates who don't deserve it, though, isn't it? Because they're not going to know anything. Yeah, I think, something, I, you know. I think we're already there. I mean, honestly, I think we were there in 1990. You know, most people I know, and especially in the U.S., are just woefully ignorant about even basic things like when their country was founded or who were the principal combatants in World War II or when that ended or like they're all just they barely understand a lot and it's really scary. And we hit a we hit a breaking point in 2016 where enough of those people existed to kind of take over the government for the first time. And it's you got to see what it was like. Yeah. <laughs> American politics terrifies me as a Brit. I mean, to be to, to a large degree, oh. America terrifies me. I'd never seen a policeman with a gun until I went to America. You just yeah, it's police here don't have them. Yeah, the the core conceit of America, and this really upsets people, but I don't know why, is succeed at any cost as long as you were not caught. That is the ethos of of America, and that's not a solid ethos to build a culture on. It, it's literally. I will screw you before you can screw me. That's the core. That, and that is terrible. That is just awful. Um, so, you know, that fills me with fear and anxiety whenever I think about that kind of stuff. My, you know, my dad and my brother live in Florida, which is kind of like the crazy. Past you know, Central, the isn't it? <laughs> it's the testing ground for American fascism right now. It's like, let's roll it out locally and see how it does. And then we'll spread it all over. But yeah, you should be afraid of America. America is a terrifying place. Well, I think um, I've noticed changes here over the past couple of years where you go in. I think I've seen where you've got this from. I, 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 seem, to, <laughs> I seem to remember this in America and it's been like, you know, Johnson. And I don't know how much you know about right. our current government, but it's just the ability to try to ride out the absolute worst things that people can do. Just I could just ride yeah. it out. Yeah, you know, I often say this and I'm and I'm entirely not joking. I am deeply disappointed in the American assassination industry. Deeply disappointed. <laughs> um, because anybody can die. Anyone. It, and it's so easy to do. It really is. Like we've lost that in America. We really have. Like, and, you know, and you know, it used to be you'd get a proto-fascist coming up in the 60s or something, and he'd go and give a couple speeches like George Wallace. And then someone will put a couple 38s in him. 
And no problem there. George Wallace is not running for president anymore. No, you know, America is in deep need of paying attention and kind of, you know, half the government is trying to overthrow the government. They're still there. They're still running the country. You know, so, but you guys, I mean, uh, UK, don't don't get me. Yeah, whenever I look, (laughs) whenever I talk about the UK, I say it's like a pleasure cruise where they took a vote. Who wants to go to the beach? Never, you know, more than 50% voted and they beached the ship and begin cutting it up with the people still on board. And they're kind of like, you said you want to go to the beach, we're just, you know, but we're dying. You're cutting the ship up. Like, well, you're at the beach, right? You know, what the fuck? You know, so, and, you know, Brexit is crazy. So, yeah, you, you guys matched you us. You seated us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I mean, you know, to be fair, Brexit, school shootings, I know which one I'd rather have. In honesty. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are in way better shape. Yeah. I mean, the shooting thing in the U.S. is totally insane. And and it's just it's reached a point where it will be reported like weather. They'd be like, you know, yeah. there's a front of AK-47 fire in downtown St. Louis today to cover up. Don't go down there. You know, like it will literally be like that. No one cares. No one. They're just That's giving up. Thing, isn't it? Bill Hicks joked about this. Oh, yeah. You know, like today, 100 people died in the shooting. Now, here's Tom with the sport. You know, it's. Yeah. That's honestly, that's, that's, yeah, that's the news, you know. Yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't know. Okay. So tell us about the, the TV thing where everything's changed. Uh, well, there's two things. So one property I created in the 2000s called Godlike. Uh, which is super superhero World War II. It's very dark and violent, you know, as I want to do. Um, <laughs> it was optioned by a bunch of the producers of the Umbrella Academy and, uh, you know, a couple other guys and went to a place called Titmouse, which is run by a friend of mine, a big animation studio. Um, they do Metalocalypse and all manner of cartoons. <laughs> to become a, like an adult cartoon. And they've been working on that for a while. That's, that's one thing. And the second thing is we've, uh, we, someone optioned the Delta green rights and that option was going to expire. And instead of the expiration, they paid us a bunch of money to keep it. So we have no idea what they're doing with it right now. They're off in the void. We've not heard a, a, a lot from them, but they, they made it worth our while. And we're, we're very pleased to be partnered with. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I've often thought this about Delta green. I think, Number one, it would make a great TV show. Um, Maybe. Num- number two, how would the how would the public cope with the the main actor dying in the in the second episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's fu- it's funny, but that was my pitch: was every episode is a Twilight Zone like episode with a central character like Joe Camp or something on the periphery who binds the episodes together, and you see people come and go. But you have to be able to kill the agents, you know. It, it, it's not Delta Green otherwise. Exactly, so, yeah. But you know, I have no idea what they're doing, and you know, we're not involved too much. They have the books as resources. If I had to guess, it, this might be one of those things where it just sits in the void forever. The core problem of these things is Cthulhu and Lovecraft, and they tend to want to own the whole widget. And when they find out they cannot own Cthulhu, or there's no. <laughs> Yeah, no one yeah. person can own. They become very, oh, well, I don't know. You know, that's why Del Toro has had such difficulty making his Lovecraftian masterpieces. You know, he wants to do The Mountains of Madness and, you know, had Tom Cruise signed on at one point and they just didn't go forward with it because it's 
who owns this? Well, not us. Nobody. Public anymore, domains. Yeah. 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 Okay. So there was one other question I meant to ask you, and it was regarding yeah. the old pagan publishing stuff. Now I noticed sure. in the in the last Kickstarter, you you kind of pulling bits back in under the Arc Dream umbrella, which I think mm-hmm. is a really sensible thing to do. Um, like for example, things like um, Grace Under Pressure. It, I mean, oh, it's yeah. originally known as a Cthulhu adventure, but it's going to be a Delta Green scenario. What about the other things? Like, I mean, I know I'm unsure of the kind of the position of Walker in the Wastes. I've heard many different versions of why that will get reprinted. And yeah, so so there's a high level. Um, so uh, Pagan Publishing in the '90s, we worked. We were a very small group. It was John Times, me, uh, a guy named Brian Appleton, and a guy named John Crow the Third, and Blair Reynolds. Uh, and Blair Reynolds is an incredible artist. John Crow is an incredible writer. Brian Appleton was a great editor uh, and John did layout and design and writing and editing. And we worked very closely together. The problem was John Rowe put in a ton of work and, you know, like the rest of us didn't get very much out of it. Like the original Delta green, we spent, you know, $30,000 printing it and barely made any money. Like we're eating McDonald's cheeseburgers going in 69 cent cheeseburger day trying to make that last the week because we, you know, we literally full time on this and it just slowly got ripped off. Bro, who wrote Realm of Shadows and Walker and Wastes and Coming Full Circle, a bunch of really good books, uh, never really got his due, never really got his money, never really, you know, and he was very bitter about the way the RPG industry kind of failed to pay out. Now, when things got much better in like, so circa 2014, when things started to look up, <laughs> I was like, well, we should just kickstart it and we can just pay up front and build this thing. He was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. So it's, it's permanently so, in limbo at this point. It's his, it's his work, you know, so yeah. we, we don't own it and uh, we wouldn't want to own it um, because it's, you know, it's important the artists get paid. So it's up to him, but you know, I highly doubt he'll ever print anything again would be my guess because he's so, uh, I don't want to say upset. He's, he's, so certain there's no money to be made in it even though we're like listen there's pretty decent money in making these books now and you can kickstart it up front so you don't cover any of the costs and you end up just you know once you sell the book you make a lot of profit and he's like man so i don't know we 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 contacted him about it and he was a hard no Hmm, that's that's sad isn't it because I mean, yeah. these days as well, you know, you could do really good hardback versions of these books and read the. Oh, I would, lo- I would love it. And Realm of Shadows is one one of my favorite things, and and I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. I, I own so, it behind me there somewhere. Oh, yeah. Um, that, actually, that was a question Pookie asked me to ask. You know, Pookie um, was about yeah. coming full circle because he said it's a brilliant set of adventures. Oh. I, I love those adventures. It's vampires, ghosts, and oh, it's cool. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Yeah. I, I, you know, we approached him almost immediately when we were doing this last one. And it was just a, nope, don't want to do that. So. That's sad. 